All right, so this morning, uh, like, I, like I mentioned before the prayer, this morning what we're going to do is what I want to do is I want to talk to you about a story. I would, essentially, what I want to do this morning is I want to tell you a story, okay? Now, here's the thing about the story that we're going to look at. The, the story that we're going to look at is about real people who's dealt with real problems and were delivered by a real God, okay? That's the story that we are going to be looking at and unpacking this morning. Real people who faced real problems and were delivered by a real God. Now, the people who we're going to be looking at is actually a couple, a very famous couple in, in the Gospels. And they were a couple that they, had, they really had no reason to rejoice. If you were to look at their circumstance, they really had no reason to actually rejoice. But because of the Gospel and because of what was promised, they were able to do just that. They were able to rejoice. Now, when I bring up a couple that's in the old, the, 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 that's part of the Christmas story, all of us automatically assume that we know who I'm talking about, right? Oh, you're going to talk about Mary and Joseph. But actually, that's not who we're going to talk about. We will talk about them eventually, but that's not who we're talking about this morning. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Zechariah and Elizabeth were real people. And so what I want to do for the first few minutes is I want to tell you about these two individuals. I want to tell you about their lives. I want to tell you about their, their, their personality, their makeup, their background, so that you can see just how genuine these people were, okay? So let's begin by looking at Zechariah. The first person that the, that the passage brings up is a guy named Zechariah. Look what it says in verse 5. It says, at the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. Okay, so the first person we're introduced to is a guy named Zechariah. And you know what his name meant? His name actually was a very common name. Zechariah might be a unique name to us, but this was a very common name. There was actually many people in the Bible called Zechariah, but what his name actually meant was the Lord has remembered. That's what Zechariah means. The Lord has remembered. And what we're told in the passage is that Zechariah was a priest. He was a priest. And the reason why Zechariah was a priest is because he actually had no choice in it. Because according to scripture, Zechariah was a Levite. And because he was a Levite, the Levites were from the tribe of Levi, okay? So back in the Old Testament, there was a guy named Jacob who God renamed Israel, and he had 12 sons. And one of the sons, the fourth one, was named Levi. God decided that through Levi, all the priests were going to come from, okay? And so the reason why Zechariah is a priest is because he had no choice. He couldn't be a banker. He couldn't be a mechanic. He couldn't be an accountant. He couldn't be unemployed and live in his parents' basement until he was 37. He couldn't do that because he had to be a priest. That's just what guys in the, the Levite community did. If you were a Levite, you were a priest. So you got to think about what that was like growing up. Your, your great-grandfather's a priest, your great-great-grandfather, your great-great-one, your great-one, your grandfather, your dad, your uncles, your, your brothers. You're surrounded by priests. You grow, you're in a place, and every single person in your family and in your community is a priest. So think about that. From the moment you're born, everybody knows that you're going to be a spiritual leader. You're going to be a minister or a pastor, if you will, in that community. See, I praise God that you guys don't know the first 21 years of my life, okay? Because you probably wouldn't be here if you knew the first 21 years of my life. But this guy, from the moment he was born, everybody knew he was going to be a priest. You want to you talk about the pressure that comes with that? You want to talk about the expectations that come with that? People were looking at him, and, and here's the thing. So many times people think, oh, the, reason, the people who go to ministry, those are the holy people. The people who go to ministry, those are the pure people. They don't struggle with idols. They don't struggle with selfish ambition. They don't struggle with competition. Uh, newsflash, they do. They're some of the worst. Actually, the reason why they are the worst, people in ministry are the worst, is because they're under this spiritual uh, uh, mask and so people, instead of con confronting them, they, they feed it. And so you grew up in a very competitive, very narrow, very uptight, very legalistic, a very high-pressured situation. That's the life that he grew up into. And then we're told that not only was he a priest, but he was from the priestly division of Abijah. Now, for us, that doesn't mean anything, right? But here's why this was important. Back in those days, back in the days of Zechariah, there was, scholars estimate, there was anywhere between 18,000 to 24,000 priests. That's a lot of priests, okay? So it wasn't about 12, it wasn't 12 or, or, or 18 of them. It was 18,000 to 
to 24,000. That's the estimates. That's a lot of priests, okay? So what they did was, because there were so many priests, they actually divided those priests into 24 divisions. There was 24 divisions, and depending on who you were born to, you landed in one of the divisions. And so he was from the division of Abijah. Now, that name Abijah, the reason why they used the name Abijah is because the 24 divisions weren't just picked randomly. The 24 divisions came from the Bible because Aaron, who was Moses' brother, Aaron was the, the first priest and all the, he was the first Levite, the first Levite priest and all the priests came from him. So what they did was they took the 24 grandchildren of Aaron. Aaron had 24 grandchildren. They took his 24 grandchildren, the males, and they made those the head of each division. And so Abijah was one of the grandchildren of Aaron. He was number eight, actually, according to the Bible. He was the eighth grandchild. Now, here's what's interesting. You would think, okay, got it. So that means that Zechariah comes from Abijah. Got it. But that's actually not even the whole story. Because here's what happened. And what many people don't realize is that a few maybe a couple centuries after the priesthood was set up, maybe a few centuries after the priesthood was set up and the 24 divisions were established, Israel disobeyed God. They were unfaithful to God. And as a result, they were punished by God. And here's how God punished them. God sent Babylonians. King Nebuchadnezzar showed up and he wiped out the whole land. And he took all the nobles and all the people of influence with him. And one of the groups that he took with him were the priests. Most of the priests were taken when, when Nebuchadnezzar showed up. Many of them were taken. So many of the 24 divisions were wiped out. But what's interesting is that at the end of the exile, what history tells us is that not all of the divisions made it back. Actually, many of them didn't make it back. So they went from 24 divisions and only about three or four made it back. Okay? And actually, Abijah wasn't one of the divisions that made it back. They were wiped out by the Babylonians. And here's what happened. When these four divisions came back, the Jews didn't know what to do. They're like, okay, we only have four of the, of the 24, so what do we do? So what they did was, just for his, history purposes, historical purposes, they took the, the, the priests that were left and they divided them back into 24, people, into 24 divisions. Right? They did the 24 again. So the people who, so even though he's from the tribe of descendant of, 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 uh, uh, from the division of Abijah, he actually isn't from the division of Abijah. No one knows what division he was from because not only did they take away all the priests, they also destroyed all the records. So no one knew who belonged to who. So they came back with four, three to four, and then they divided it again back into 24. So Abijah doesn't actually, the division of Abijah didn't technically exist anymore, but that's the division he was assigned to, Okay. So he is a priest from the division of Abijah. Now, here's what the life of a priest looked like. The life of a priest, we, 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 can, we can kind of imagine what it looks like, but it's actually not the way we expect. Actually, a priest didn't really go to the temple all that much. You would think he'd be at the temple all the time. But what, but what historians say, what scholars say, is that a priest would only go to the temple twice a year. Because there were so many priests, 18 to 24,000, like I said, not all of the priests can be at the temple at the same time. And actually, many of the priests didn't even live in Jerusalem. They lived all throughout the Judean countryside, okay? And so here's what would happen. Twice a year, your division would be called to go to the temple. And for one week, you would serve at the temple. That's what the priests did. So only two weeks a year, you were actually at the temple. The only other time you were at, a temple, at the temple, if you were a priest, was on the three major Jewish feasts. So that is uh, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. So you would go for your two weeks, your two assigned weeks that your division had to do, and then you would have to go three other times when all the Jew, that's when all the priests had to show up, which was for the big ones, the big events. So in a year, you would pretty much, out of a whole year, you would only spend five weeks at the temple if you were a priest. Only five weeks. And so the question is, what would a priest do with all the rest of his time? He was only working about once a, one month out of 12 months. What he would do, actually, according to scholars, is what a priest would do is a priest would stay in whatever community he was and he was living in, and he would pretty much be a pastor of that community. He would be the pastor, the minister of that community. So he would perform weddings, he would perform funerals, he would pray for people, he would pray for the sick. He was essentially the pastor and the minister of that community. That's what a priest would do in those days, okay? That's the role that he would play. And so Elizabeth, his wife, obviously, she played a role in that because as they served the community, she came alongside him and served with him. So that's Zechariah. Now I want to take a few moments and I want to talk to you about the other person in the story, which is Elizabeth. And look what it says. It says, 
after the semicolon, it says, his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Now, we don't hear as much about her. We have more information about him, but I'm going to try to take a stab a little bit at who she was. According to Scripture, she also was a Levite. He was a descendant of Aaron, and she was a descendant of Aaron. Okay? They both were Levites. So she grew up, just like him, in a Levitical home. So just like him, she was a pastor's kid. She grew up in a home where her grandpa was a minister, her dad was a minister, her uncles were ministers, her siblings were ministers. She grew up in a priestly home. And so she was always part of the ministry because they would probably take her to places and do ministry with her. That's what she did. Now, you know, you don't, know, you don't really hear much about her family, but you know that her family was, at the very least, a very devout family. And you know that. Why? Because her name was Elizabeth. And the reason why that name is significant, the word Elizabeth, what it means is, the, the word literally means the Lord, the name means the Lord is faithful. And you know that his, their family, this, this Levitical family that she was part of, you know they were devout because Elizabeth was actually the name of Aaron's wife. So Aaron, the, the first priest, was married to a woman named Elizabeth. So you know her family is devout because they named her after the wife of the priest, of the, the, the priest of priests, which was Aaron. Okay? So think about it. If he grew up with pressure, she grew up with the same amount of pressure. She grew up with the same amount of pressure. Everyone knew that she was going to have, she, she, everyone knew that at some point she was going to go from being a pastor's kid to being a pastor's wife because she was going to have to marry within her, her tribe. So she was going to go from a pastor's kid to being a pastor's wife. So all throughout her life, just like he was being watched, so was she. Everyone had expectations for her. Everyone expected things from her. Everyone expected her to be the, the ultimate example in, in purity and in behavior and in, in speech. In every area, people were watching Elizabeth. She was being watched. And then it says, clearly what we find out is that they, at some point, they got married. And, and if, 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 if based on what we know about that time, most people were actually married in your late teens. So by the time you were 18, 19, you were already married in those days, okay? So at some point, Zechariah and Elizabeth get married, and there's actually a very good chance that they didn't choose one another. They were chosen for one another. There's a good chance that the families, because there was a lot of families, but there's a good chance that their families knew each other, and they were probably chosen for each other, okay? So now do the math for a second. They, they marry at 18, 19, let's say, to be conservative. It could have even been earlier than that. But they marry at 18, 19. And then in the passage, it says that they were very old in age. And what scholars say is that that means that they were at least over 60 by that time. So they've been married for a significant amount of time. This is a couple that was married for a significant amount of time. And one of the things that we can forget when we look at marriages in the, in, the, in the Bible is we can say, oh, those are not a real marriage. Those aren't real people. No, but they were real people. And they had real problems. They had ups and they had downs and they had good days and they had bad days. They were a, a, a family that, that was a family. They were a marriage that was a marriage. You know, they were such a marriage that I, to me, I, I laugh to myself. You know, I, sometimes I like imagining how things would have gone. You know, later on in the story, we find out that um, uh, uh, Zechariah, he ignores one of the things that, that, the, the, that the angel promises him. And so God punishes Zechariah by making him mute. I could just imagine what him coming home would have been like. Remember, they were a married couple who had married issues, married problems. Can you imagine coming home from a trip and then the wife was like, hey, honey, how was your trip? Angel, mm, mm. Right? Can you imagine? What Jewish woman would let that go? Honey, we got to talk. What's wrong with us? I feel like you're very distant right now. Every time you come back from these trips, I feel like you just don't understand me. I hate when you go on these trips, Zach. Every time you go on these trips, I feel like you're just a different person. Are we okay? Are we okay? We haven't really talked. And I'm worried about our marriage. Can we, can we be eye to eye for a second? What's this? What, is, what are you doing to me right now? <laughs> Talk to me. What's wrong with us? Guys, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> Women talk a lot as it is, but when you're mute, they're, they're going to fill in all the time, okay? So he's over here doing Napoleon Dynamite signs. He's like, uh, uh, you know, trying to, trying to get her to, to, to understand what just happened to him. And she has no idea what's going on. Why? Because they were married. Right? So since they were married, yeah, amen. 
They were, they were shouting it out. I love it. Shouting down. Right? They were, they were married. They had real issues. Okay? But it, they weren't just a normal couple because it says in verse 6 that both of them were righteous. Listen to this. In the sight of God. So the Pharisees in Jesus' day were righteous in the sight of men. These people were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. So in many ways, because of their faithfulness to their marriage, because of their faithfulness to one another, they were the ultimate example. They should have been the model couple that everyone in the community followed. But according to the scripture, that's not what happened. According to the scripture, even though in every way they should have been an example to follow, they weren't followed. They weren't a model. If anything, they were criticized. If anything, they were gossiped about. If anything, they were less than. And we'll talk about why in a little bit. Okay? So what I want you to see here, hey guys, listen, these are real people who were really married and went through real struggles. See, these were real people with real problems. And here's the thing. I'm going to give you, there's many problems that they faced being Jews in that day, but I'm going to give you three in particular. There were three problems, three challenges that because of their situation, they had to deal with. The first struggle that, that Zechariah and Elizabeth went through was actually a political problem. There was a political challenge that they had. Where do I get that? Well, look at the beginning of verse five. It says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea. In the time of Herod, king of Judea. Now, Luke is the ultimate understater. Like, he, he, he understates everything. You could tell he wasn't Hispanic because Hispanics overstate everything. This dude was not Hispanic because he understates all of it, okay? And he'll do it even more later on in the verse, in the passage. But he says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. So in other words, they were Jews. They were alive during the reign of Herod. Now, why was that a problem? Why was Herod a problem? See, some of us know a little bit about Herod, but why was Herod a problem to Zechariah and to Elizabeth in particular and to Jews in general? Why was he a problem? Well, here's why. Let me tell you a little bit about who Herod was and why he was so dangerous. According to history, Herod was the first of many Herods. So we know, for those of you who know the Bible, that there were actually many Herods. There wasn't just one. There was a Herodian dynasty. And, and, and actually, at one point, the Herodian dynasty became so popular, even among the Jews, that they created a new political movement called the Herodians. They were Jews who were supportive of Herod. Okay? So there was a Herodian dynasty. But this Herod that, that Luke brings up here was the first of them. He was the first Herod the first one of the Herodian dynasty. And here's how he came to power. Let me, let me unpack for you how this Herod came into power. He, he, was, he, he was relatively unknown. No one knew who he was, right? And then his dad, his, name's da his dad's name was Antipater, which is a really weird name. Say that four times in a row. His name was a Antipater, his dad's name, right? His dad was close friends with Julius Caesar. So the first JC, okay? The, the pagan JC, not the, 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 right? The first JC. And so, so, he was friends with Julius Caesar. He was so close to him, in fact, that there were many battles that Julius Caesar got into, and this guy, Antipater, came alongside him as an ally and fought alongside him. So after, after Julius Caesar won all these battles, and he finally established peace in the land, in the Roman Empire, what he did was, in order to reward Antipater, he made him governor of all of Judea. He said, hey, listen, as a gift, I'm giving you this whole territory as, as, as you're going to be the governor now of this whole region. So Antipater, he takes over the, the region of, of Judea, and the first thing he does is he appoints his son Herod as the, 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 the smaller governor of Galilee. So Judea is the bigger region. Galilee is a smaller region. So he, he's, he gets gifted Judea, and immediately he puts his 25-year-old son Herod as the leader of Galilee. Okay? Now, no one knows how it's going to go, right? Not a lot of people know who Herod is. But to everyone's surprise, Herod does an amazing job. So he's a wonderful orator. He's a, a, a great diplomat. He's an awesome politician. And actually, the area, the region starts to flourish under his leadership. They're building all these new buildings. Taxes are going down. And, and people love him. Even the Jews at first really, really loved him. But here's what happens. A few years go by, and his dad, Antipater, he dies. So the, the governor of the region, he dies. And so all the people in the region start to revolt. And so Herod, in order to save his life, he, he, he flees to Rome. And when he gets to Rome, he gets to know all the major players. Julius Caesar is gone by then. There's a different uh, uh, emperor in the place. He gets to know the new emperor, and the emperor actually finds favor with him. And, and, and he's, they, they see his gifts. They see how skilled he is, and they actually really like him. 
And so what they do is they, they give him an army and they allow him to go back to Judea to destroy all the people who had caused the revolt. So around 37 BC, he goes back to Judea, he destroys the, the, the people who were revolting and he takes over the entire region of Judea, the same place that his dad used to have. But this time, instead of being the governor, the, the, the Romans have given him the title of king. So now he's no longer the, the governor of Judea like his dad was, he is the king of Judea now, Okay. So this is what's going on in his life. Now, here's one of the things that people don't know about him. He actually wasn't a Jew. Herod was a, an Edomite. He was from Edom. Now, the reason why that's so important is because if you look at the Old Testament, the Edomites were one of the most hated enemies of the Jews. Edom and Israel hated each other. They hated each other. And so this man is the king of the Jews, and he's an Edomite. So he's leading a people group who can't stand him. Even though he hasn't done anything wrong to them yet, they already hate him, and there's nothing he can do to get their, their, their favor because he's an Edomite. And so what he does in order to try to get their approval, in order to try to get their, their favor, he marries a Jewish woman. And he doesn't marry just any Jewish woman. He marries this Jewish woman from a very prominent Jewish family. There was a, according to historians, there was this intertestamental period. So from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there was about 400 years that went by. And one of the most influential Jewish families, that's the family he married into during those 400 years. He got a, a Jewish wife and he married her in order to get favor with the people he was leading, Right? So for a long time, it seemed like everything was going well with Herod. But, but over time, he got old, he got cynical. And the older he got, the more vicious he got. The, the, the more paranoid he got. The more jealous he got. And he literally, he got to a point where he just started killing people left and right. So one of the things that he did, just to show you how vicious and merciless he was, he, he killed the Jewish high priest. The Jewish high priest was getting way too much attention. He didn't like that. And so he had him drowned. He had him assassinated. But secretly, so no one knew that the king had done it, but, the, but everyone knew the king had done it, right? So he murdered this guy because he didn't like the, the prominence and he was, he was scared that he was going to get more attention than him. So he had the high priest murdered. Then the dude had the audacity to go to the funeral and cry. Cry like if he was a victim as well, as well. okay? And here's the worst part. Not only did he kill the high priest, but the high priest was his wife's brother, Okay? It was his wife's brother. And then a few months go by, his wife starts getting wind of the conspiracy, and then he kills her too. Then his mother-in-law started getting in his nerves. He kills her too. And some of you are like, amen, brother. You know, amen. Let's, right? Okay? He just starts wiping people out. And he, to, to a point where he actually, he gets so paranoid that he kills three of his boys. Towards the end of his life, he kills, you know how, you know how power hungry and how, how, how paranoid you are when you kill your sons, your, your own children? He killed three of his children at the end of his life. And by the end of his life, when he knew he was about to die, when he, was, he got so sick, he knew he was about to die. Here's what he did, just to show you how ruthless he was. When he knew he was about to die, he, he sent his soldiers to go out into Judea and to arrest all the noblemen, all the nobles that lived in, in, in that region. He had all of them arrested and thrown in prison. Here's why. They didn't do anything wrong. But he threw him in prison because he knew that when he died, no one was going to mourn for him. And so here's what he told his soldiers to do. He said, on the day I die, I want you to kill all the nobles. Because I want people to mourn in, in, in Judea when I die. He didn't care if it was mourning for him. He just wanted it to be a sad day when he died. And so all the nobles on the day he died were murdered in that region. And that's not even the worst thing he did because this is the same Herod who a couple years later had all the kids murdered, all the, the kids under two murdered in Bethlehem. Same guy. He got to a point where he was so paranoid that he was scared to chill, abate an infant. That's how bad Herod was. And so listen, we, we in the last 20 years, we've gone through a lot of political situations. And I don't care what side of the aisle you on. I don't care who you vote for. But the reality is this. No president that we've ever had holds a candle to this man. So one of the problems that they had was Herod, and he was a very real problem. Heck, they're lucky that they didn't live in Bethlehem because John would have been killed. They're lucky that they weren't part of the region where, where he wiped everybody out because their own son would have been killed. That's how dangerous it was. So, so one of the real struggles they had was it was a political problem. There was a political struggle. But there wasn't just a political struggle. There was also, one of the other things that, that Zechariah and, and Elizabeth had to struggle with is they were struggling with a, there was a spiritual problem. There was a spiritual problem. And here's what I mean by a spiritual problem. Back then, you know, one of the things that we take for granted because we have the New Testament 
is we open up stories like this in the, in, in the Christmas story, and we all know how it goes, right? The, the God shows up, the angel shows up, he, he makes a promise, baby Jesus shows up, he's weird and he's glowing, and he's like this weird-looking baby that probably didn't look anything like him. Um, uh, uh, this glowing Gerber baby. Um, 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 we, we, we're so used to this story that we kind of just, it's like a fairy tale almost, right? But one of the real struggles that these people had is that there was a spiritual struggle. And here's what I mean by a spiritual struggle. There are moments in our lives where we go through dry seasons, right? We go through dry seasons. There's moments in our lives where we feel like God is very distant and God hasn't spoken. Those dry seasons can last a week. It can last a month. It can last a year. These people were going through the driest of dry seasons because they hadn't heard it from God in 400 years. Just to give you a little bit of context, our nation has only existed for a little bit over 200 years. So they hadn't heard from God more than double of what America has existed. That's how long it had been since these people had heard. So not only did they have a political problem because of Herod, they also had a spiritual problem because no one had heard from God for four centuries. God had gone radio silent. So there hadn't been a word from God since Malachi. That's 400 years. There hadn't been an angel from God since the book of Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. That's 500 years. And there hadn't been a, a miracle from God for 800 years. That's a long time. And so as Jews, one of the struggles that they had, one of the problems that they had, especially being a priest, because you were in the temple all the time, you were making all these sacrifices. You see, because one of the things we assume is that a priest, what, what a priest does is a priest says there and just bless you, child, bless you, child. That's not what a priest did. Back then, what the majority of priests would do, especially on those weeks that they would go, on those two weeks they would go back to Jerusalem to serve, what they would do is they would actually just sacrifice animals all day. That's what the priest did. It was a very bloody job. People would show up and they said, hey, I did this, okay? Kill the animal for you. Hey, I did this. Okay, kill the, By the end of, the, of, a, of a day, you are covered in blood, head to toe, because of how bloody this job was. And so if there's anybody who understood just how, 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 how de deepening, how, 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 how do I put this, the weightiness of this silence, if there's anyone who understood it, it was Zechariah, because he had to be at the temple twice a year and at all the major festivals knowing all this is for nothing because God's not going to say anything. He hasn't said anything forever. What are we doing? We're just spinning our wheels. The whole system is broken. Centuries of sacrifices. I did the math. There were easily over a million animal, easily, probably closer to two million animal sacrifices from the last time God spoke to when he finally shows up. You know what over almost two million animal sacrifices is? That's crazy. That just shows you that, that that was a spiritual problem. God had gone radio silent on them. No one had heard anything. See, in the book of Malachi, it says that Here's interesting. In the book of Malachi, one of the, the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi says that one day out of the darkness, a son, the son is going to rise up again. And what Jews said is that that's actually a messianic promise, that he's talking about the Messiah, that one day the, a son, the son's going to come out and, and these beams are going to break through the darkness and the Messiah will be back. Everyone was expecting that and nothing happened for 400 years. It all stayed dark. There was no son, no son at all. And so that's the world that they're living in. And so one of the things, again, uh, Luke, Mr. Understater.com, here, here's what he does. He tells us, if you go to the next part in, in verses 7 through 8, look what he says. He says, uh, uh, verse 8, once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. Listen to this, verse 9. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, verse 8 and 9 just seem like, oh, that's just a normal thing that priests did. But again, because, because he, all he does is understate things, Luke doesn't really give you the significance of what this means. Now remember, there was 18,000 to about 24,000 priests, roughly, in somewhere in that estimate. 18,000 to 24,000. Once, so here's what would happen. When you were at the temple, when you were at the temple for your two weeks of service, there would be a morning incense burning and an evening incense burning. And what they would do for the morning and for the evening is they would cast lots and to determine which priest would be the one that would go in the morning, which priest would be the one that went in the evening. That's how it happened. But this was a very rare thing to get because there were so many priests to choose from. It was a very rare thing. And once you did it, you were checked off the list and you could never do it again because it was such a rare thing, okay? So Zechariah is sitting there and the last thing he thinks is that he's gonna be chosen. And all of a sudden, they cast lots and I think based on my study that it wasn't the morning incense that he burned, it was the, the evening incense that he burned because it says that there was a lot of people outside and that usually happened during the evening burning of the incense, okay? So he's there, he gets chosen to be the person 
who burns the incense in the temple. Here's what this meant. You would go in there, you would grab coals from where the animal sacrifices were being made. You would grab burning coals from there. You would bring them in a bowl into the holy place. Not the most holy, not the holy of holies, because only the high priest can go there. But you would go into the area right outside the holy of holies. You would bring these, these, these coals in the bowl to this altar. You would put the coals on, the, on these burning coals on the altar and all this incense would start to blow, go up. It would be this incense that would go up into the sky. And here's what the incense represented. The incense represented God's people. It represented God's people reaching out to God, praying to God, opening up to God. That's what the incense represented in the morning and in the evening. So he gets asked to do that. That was already terrifying enough. Okay? But the last thing he thought, because there was this spiritual problem that God hadn't spoken, on the one hand, it was a huge honor. On the other hand, it was like, mm, he's not going to say anything anyway, so let's just keep, let's keep this thing going. It was a broken system that just wouldn't stop. Okay? So there was a political problem. There was a spiritual problem. And you know what the third problem they faced? This is probably the one that most affected them. See, the, uh, the first two, the political and the spiritual, affected all the Jews in general. But this third problem affected them in particular. Look, look what it says in verse 7. A personal, there was a personal problem. It says, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Now, if you read the previous verse, look what it says, verse 6. If you could put verse 6 up, it says, Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all God's commands and decrees blamelessly. That's someone to follow, right? But here's why people didn't follow him. Because there's a but. And then it says, They were childless and they were very old. So the third problem, like I said, the first two are more general problems that every Jew had to deal with. But this problem was a very personal problem that only they had to deal with. And what it says is, is that they were childless. Elizabeth was barren. Now, for those of you who, who are here, and for those of you who have ever experienced infertility, for those of you who've ever had a miscarriage, my wife and I went through both, infertility and a miscarriage. For those of you who've ever gone through that, you know how difficult that is. You know the fears that, that pop up. You know the emotions that you feel. You know the, the pressures that you feel, the bitterness, the anger, the uncertainty that you feel. But actually, I would argue, and that's not to minimize what we've gone through, but, but I would argue that in that day, it was even worse. You know why? Because what Jews believed in light of Psalm 127 is that children were an inheritance from the Lord. They were a gift from the Lord. And so if you were a Jew and you couldn't have kids, and that meant God wasn't blessing you, and so by, by default, that meant God was punishing you. It's not only did you have to deal with all the guilt and all the emotions that come with miscarriage and infertility, but now everyone in your community thinks you did something wrong. Everyone in your community thinks you deserved it. You know how difficult that would be? And then, to, to, to make matters worse, they're a ministry family, so they're serving God. She grew, up in the, she grew up in serving God. He grew up serving God. And so if anyone should deserve children, it's the people who serve God. And so if you're a priest and you're his wife and you guys are holy and you guys are righteous, then what did you do wrong? What did you do to get God mad at you? Think about the pressure that, 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 that they had to walk with. Think about the comments that people would make behind their back. Family members and friends and other priests. Think about what priests would say. The priests who were, who were around Zechariah, like, oh, there goes the guy who doesn't have any kids. There goes the guy that his legacy is over after this. There goes the priest who God's punishing. You know, as, as a woman, and even as a man, just the, 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 the feelings of, of insecurity, the, the, the feelings of not being enough, the stigma that came with that, the bitterness against God. Can you imagine Elizabeth, someone who served God from the day she was born, the bitterness she would have felt during, towards God? Like, what, what did I do to you? All I've done is serve you since the day I was born, and this is what you do to me? You disgrace me in front of my community? The bitterness, the anger, these were real people who had real fears. See, in those days, a barrenness was so serious that actually it was a grounds for divorce. Your husband can legally divorce you and not have any blood on it, like literally just divorce you because you weren't producing for him. So not only did she have to deal with the fear of the community, but at any moment her husband could have let her, divorced her and, and she, he would have had every right to according to the law because according to the passage, it says they weren't able to, uh, they were childless, why? Because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. It was her. So he, he, he could have let her go at any moment. Think about the pressure that, that comes with that. 
the stigma, the, the, the fears, the insecurities. And to make things worse, they went from a feeling of hopefulness to hopelessness to total despair because at the end of the verse it says that they were both very old. So it says that they were, that means that according to commentators, they were at least over the age of 60. And so the show was over. They weren't going to have any kids. The only way they were ever going to have a kid is if there was a miracle, but there hadn't been a miracle in 800 years. Those are real problems that these people really had. Okay? It's not that we understand that these were real people and that these people had real problems. What I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to look at the real solution, the real provision that God provides for them, gives them in this passage. It's actually three, and all of them are mind-blowing. All of them are mind-blowing. God shows up into this real couple, into this real family with these real issues, and he provides a real solution. And there's actually three that he provides. The first thing that God does is God provides presence. He provides his presence. Here, here's, what it, here's what I mean. Look what it says here in the passage. I don't want you to miss this. So, 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 so it says in verse 11, uh, well, before, before I go into that, before I go into that, so, so remember, they, no one has heard from God, no one has seen an angel in 500 years. So, they hadn't, so there hadn't been words written by God for 400 years, Malachi, but no one had seen an angel for 500 years because that was the book of Daniel when they show up in the, in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. No one has seen an angel for 500 years, Okay. And so they're in this, in this struggle. They're, they're struggling with all these fears and all these doubts and all these insecurities. And the last thing they think is they're going to see God. And then all of a sudden, one of the ways in which God answers their problem is God shows up. He provides his presence. So, so let's go back into the story. Uh, Elijah, he's, he's sitting, not Elijah, sorry, Zechariah, he, he, he walks into the temple. He's already shocked as it is that he's in there because he's not supposed to be in there because what are the odds of him being in there? And then if you add all the social stigma that he was getting because he was barren, then all the priests were like, that guy got chosen? That's the guy that's going in there? So then, of course, when, when they take forever, he takes forever to come out, all the priests are like, well, duh, of course God killed him. He was, he was cursed. Of course he didn't come out. You should never have sent them in there to begin with, right? So he gets in there. He's terrified because of the odds of being chosen. He's terrified because of the social stigma that's following him around. He goes up to this altar. And here's what's amazing. One of the things that I didn't mention earlier, but, but if, as you go up to that altar, not, like I said, many, no, no, no one who was a priest ever got that opportunity, but many priests never got that opportunity. And so you're sitting there and you're literally, the way the, the temple was set up, the, 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 the altar of incense was right here and the curtain that separated the Holy of Holy, Holies was right there. So it was right here, the Holy of Holies. So the only person that would get closer to God was the, the high priest on the Day of Atonement. That's the only person that would go back there. So in other words, as a priest, this was as close to God as you'll ever get. And so he's sitting there, and, and he's been praying. He's been praying for a Messiah. He's been praying for a child. He's been praying for all these things, and he's sitting there, but he's been so convinced that God's not going to change his situation. He had become so accustomed to his suffering, his pain, and his, 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 his season of life that he just went in there to do what he had to do. But part of him is terrified because he knows that's the holy of holy thing. That's, that's the holy of holies. And if what people outside are saying is true, that I am a sinner, and that's why God hasn't given me a kid, God can take me out at any moment here. This thing could get really bad really fast. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of all this thing, God shows up. The, the, God's presence shows up. God shows up in the middle of his thing, of his, in the middle of his struggle, and says, hey, listen, I am here. So God comes up. Instead of him falling into the curtain, God comes out from behind the curtain. God pops up. And it says that an angel shows up. And an angel shows up. And here's what it says. It says, um, um, the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Now, the reason why that's good news that it was the right side is because the right side of the altar was the favored side. That means that if he was on the right side, that means he had good news for you. If he was on the left side, it would have been bye-bye Zechariah, okay? And so praise God that he's on the right side, but he's sitting there and he's just shocked by it. He, it says that he's absolutely terrified. It says that he is startled and was gripped with fear. Isn't that such a, 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 a Christian thing to do, right? You're sitting there and you're praying for God to show up. You're asking for God to show up. You're asking God to do something. And then God shows up and you don't expect him. That's exactly what they do with Peter, actually. Peter, in the book of Acts, he's in prison. They're praying for Peter to get out. Peter gets out. He's knocking on the door. And the little girl's like, hey, Peter's outside. No, 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 that's not Peter. No, no, Peter's not here. That's what you were praying for. That's what you were asking for. 
And so the angel shows up, and the angel is present. The angel is there. And here's what's amazing about God's presence. That God, he answers the prayer partially because he sends an angel. But God will fully answer the prayer one day through his son in the incarnation. So what he does partially in the story, he will do fully in Jesus. That's an incredible promise. And then take it even further, not only does he do it partially here and does it semi-partially in the incarnation, but then he actually does it even further when, he, when, when we get indwelled by the Holy Spirit. God is not only present next to us, he's now inside of us because of the gospel. And so I don't know what you're going through, but I need you to know that God is with you right there. He's not standing next to you. He's not some at the cross in front of you. He's indwelling in you if you are a Christian. And so one of the promises that we have, one of the ways in which God delivers us is he gives us his presence. But that's not the only thing God does. God not only gives them his presence, God also makes him a promise. He makes him a promise because look what it says in the next verse. In verse 13, the angel starts to, to talk to him, and the angel says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you. Listen to this. So that's the personal benefit. And many will rejoice because of his birth. And so he not only shows up, but he also speaks up. Sorry, that was eighth grade voice. Uh, 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 he not only shows up, he not only shows up, he also speaks up, and here's what he says to him. He goes to, he goes to him, he says, listen, I am not only going to show up in your, in your mess, I'm going to speak into your mess. I'm not only going to be present, I'm going to make you a promise, and the promise is that from you, you are going to bear a son. You are going to bear a son. And again, there's the partial and the full promise again. There's a partial promise because he's taking care of his personal problem. He's going to give him a son, but that son points to a greater son that will take care of his ultimate problem. Right? And then he says, now it will be a, a joy and delight to you and your wife, but there's a greater promise. There's the, there's the partial, and then there's the full promise, which is many will rejoice. Not only will you rejoice, but because of the son that will come as a result of this, not only will you rejoice, but many will rejoice. And that's the promise God's making to you this morning. I, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's something relational or spiritual or emotional or, or, or mental. I don't know what it is that you're going through, but I need you to know that not only is God present, but God is speaking a promise into that. There's a gospel promise that God is making. You see, the worst part of this whole story is that Zechariah, he talks back. He should have just shut up and not said anything, but he starts talking, and he says, oh, well, how can this be? How will this happen? And so the angel he gets mad at him. He says, listen, I am Gabriel. So God wasn't just sending any angel. According to scholars, there could be as many as a million angels, right? But the Bible only tells us about two. They tell us about Gabriel and they tell us about Michael. Michael's the one that shows up whenever there's a fight. There's a fight, Michael's the one that shows up. But if there's a message to be sent, Gabriel's the one that shows up. He says, listen, not only is this God speaking to you, but God sent his ultimate angel to you, the messenger, to tell you that he's with you. And then look what, look what he says to him. If you, if you go, um, um, the angel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you. Listen to this. And to tell you this good news. The phrase there, good news, is the word evangelion, which is the word gospel. So the, what the angel does is he shows up, and he preaches the gospel to Zechariah. He gives him the gospel. He says, it's no longer the Old Testament. It's no longer the Mosaic Covenant. It's no longer what you do. It's about what Jesus will do. He gives him the gospel. In, his middle, in the middle of his pain, in the middle of his suffering, he gives him the gospel. That's what he does. And so the gospel is, hey, you're going to get a son partially. That's a partial fulfillment. But there's a, a greater son that will come as a result of this. And that son will be the son of God. So think about it. In the middle of this temple, he is standing just a few feet away from where the yearly sacrificial lamb is sacrificed. He says, hey, as you stand a few feet away from the sacrificial lamb area, I want to promise, I'm promising you the real lamb who's going to come and take all your sins away. Not just some of your sins away, but all of your sins away. That's why his son, John the Baptist, when later on, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he doesn't describe Jesus as the king of kings. He doesn't describe Jesus as the Lord of lords. He knows because John the Baptist is a Levite, he knows what it takes to get forgiven. When he sees Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why? Because his dad told him the story. His dad told him about what happened. His dad told him about what he saw. God showed up and made him a promise. He believed that promise. And because he believed that promise, now we're all delivered. Not because he's the king of kings, not because he's the Lord of lords, but because he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. 
That's what God does. So he shows up, he's present, he speaks up with a promise. And then the thing that most blows my mind about God in this story is not only does he do the presence and the promise, but then he changes their position. He changes their perspective because God shows up and he says, listen, I'm going to change not just your social status because I'm going to give you a child, but I'm actually going to change your spiritual status because I'm going to give you the child. I'm going to give you a child to change your social status. I'm going to give you the child to change your spiritual status. You think your salvation comes from having a child. Your salvation comes from my child. You're going you're gonna to experience partial joy, but in my child, in my child you're going to experience full joy. You're going to experience full joy in my child. That's the promise that God is making to them. That's what God is coming and doing. And what I love about this passage is you can see in just a few verses, you can see Zechariah and Elizabeth starting to change. They go from these religious, Mosaic covenant Jews to all of a sudden they go to these gospel-centered, uh, uh, Bible-believing, gospel-believing Christians. They actually get saved in the middle of the story. They come to know Jesus in the middle of the story. Here's how you know. Look, look, at what, uh, look at what Elizabeth says. This is crazy. Look how her, her language starts to change. If you go to verse 25, here, here's how she describes what just happened to her. She says, the Lord has done this for me. The Lord has done this for me. That's not Jewish language. That's not Mosaic language. That's not law-abiding, law-obeying language. That's gospel language. The Lord has done it. And then she says, he has shown me favor, which is another way of saying he has shown me grace. He has considered me. He has picked me out of the group. He has favored me, not because of the thing I've done, but because he's chosen me, right? And he has taken away my disgrace. You could, you could see the gospel starting to hit her. You could see her starting to understand the gospel. And then she starts talking to Mary. To Mary. Listen to this. And then in, in verse 42, he starts talking to Mary and he says, blessed are you among women, and the word blessed means to be in a happy state as a result of God's grace. So even the fact that she's using the word blessed, you could tell it's no longer God's law she's focusing on. It's God's grace she's focusing on. And then she says what would be blasphemous for any Jewish person. She says, listen to this. She says, um, but why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Think about the word Lord in Greek is the translated, transliterated version of the word Yahweh in the Old Testament. So this Jewish woman, this Levitical woman, is saying, Yahweh is in your belly. That's crazy. You can tell she's, she's finally starting to understand the gospel. She gets it. The deliverance doesn't come from what I do. The deliverance comes from what he'll do. And she's understanding it finally. My Lord is in your belly. You're about to give birth to my Savior, the person who's going to deliver me from all the things that I couldn't do in my own strength. But here's the thing, it's not just Elizabeth who's experiencing transformation. Look what Elijah, uh, Zechariah changes too. Look at the way Zechariah prays. It's so amazing. In verses 67 through 80, he starts praising God. And he's not, this is not a poem. This is not a, a journal entry. He's singing. He finally gets to speak up after all that. He's been silent for months. He finally, he's like all the praise had been pent up. And he finally gets to praise Jesus. And in the Greek, that whole prayer is one sentence. The dude doesn't even have time for a period, Okay. He's not even putting periods in that thing. It's a rap. He's rapping this thing, okay? Okay? And, and, and look what he says. You can see that the gospel is starting to hit him because he says in verse 68, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. Listen to this. Because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. See, the amazing thing about that verse is that both the word redeemed and the word raised are in the aorist tense. That's past tense. He's talking in the past. Nothing has even happened yet. Jesus hasn't even been born yet. The cross hasn't even happened yet. The resurrection hasn't happened yet. And he's speaking in the aorist tense. It's already been done. I've already been redeemed. The horn of salvation has already been raised. It's done. It's over. Can you imagine a Jew saying that? No Jew can say that to this day. That's why they're still Jews. That's why they haven't placed their faith in Jesus. It's all about what I do. He's saying it's all done. It's past tense. It's been done. That's crazy. He's, the gospel is hitting him. And then, look what he says later. This part is amazing. He goes on and he says, listen to this, verse 74, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Just in, in, in holiness and righteousness without fear? This is the same guy who a few verses ago was peeing his pants in the temple because he was spending, spending two feet from the curtain. And now he's saying that in holiness and righteousness, we can worship God without fear. You know why? Because he's understanding that his standing before God doesn't come from what he does or from what he sacrificed. It comes from what Jesus did for him on the cross. The gospel starting to hit him. He's starting to understand it. And then later on, he uses the word mercy. In this prayer, he uses the word mercy twice. No Jew used the word mercy, ever. 
Because there was no such thing as mercy. I had to earn it. I had to get it. I had to do it. And one of the things that blew my mind this week as I was studying this prayer, I can literally preach three weeks just on this prayer. Because in this prayer, he points back to two major covenants in the Old Testament. He brings up the Abrahamic covenant, and he also brings up the Davidic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was a personal covenant of personal salvation. The Davidic covenant was a, was a more global covenant for global and national salvation. He brings up both of them, and what he says is Jesus, this Messiah, is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenant. He, you know what's mind-blowing to me? The only covenant that he doesn't bring up is the one covenant that he studied more than any covenant when he was a boy. Because he was a Levite, the only covenant that Levi studied was the Mosaic covenant. He doesn't bring up the Mosaic covenant anymore. Why? Because the Mosaic covenant, all that did was bring law. The law was never supposed to deliver you. The law was to show you that you were condemned. He brings up this prayer, and you can tell he finally gets the gospel because he's saying, listen, it, it, it's done. I don't need to bring up Moses anymore. There's no more Mosaic covenant. This is the Davidic and the Abrahamic. This is the fulfillment of everything we were waiting for. It's no longer about what I do for God. It's about what God has done for me in Jesus. And so that's why, that's why for us, we, we, we need to get to that place where, where we understand just how important these people get saved. These people, the gospel transforms them. Listen, I honestly believe that if God never gave them a child, these people would still have been transformed. Because they, they finally clicked. It was almost like they were looking at a keyhole for all these years, and then finally someone gave them a key to open it. It's like it all made sense. This Old Testament scholar, this Old Testament theologian, he got it. It all made sense all of a sudden. That's what we need, guys. And, and remember how I said that in Malachi? Malachi says that one day a sun is going to rise, and that that sun is, is the, the picture of the Messiah. Later on, look what this guy says. This is crazy. He says in, in, in verse, um, in verse 78, because of the tender mercy of God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. He gets it. He says, hey, hey, Malachi, he's here. It's over. It's done. It's over. The darkness is gone. The sun has risen. It's over. That's crazy. So listen, listen. Here's what I want to end with. If you're sitting here today, I, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what it is you're going through. I, I'm not God, but God knows what you're going through. And here's what I need you to know. If these people in this story could worship God because of a partial promise, because of a partial gospel, they had the pre-order gospel. The pre-order gospel. That's what they had. We have the complete gospel. You know, one of the things that ticks me off when I listen to sermons on something like this, people will look at uh, Elijah and Elizabeth, I'm not, sorry, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they'll say, oh, we got to be more like Zechariah. Oh, we got to be more like Elizabeth. We got to try harder. We got to pray more. And we got to be faithful. Listen, listen, listen. This got nothing to do with them. It's got nothing to do with you. You know why? Because Zechariah's name means Yahweh has remembered. Her name, Elizabeth's name means Yahweh is faithful. John's name means Yahweh is gracious. So you know what that means? It's got nothing to do with you. It's got nothing to do with me. To the degree that you understand that, to the degree that you believe that, to that same degree, you will experience the joy that the gospel gives. You see, the, that's why we chose the word rejoice. We didn't name this series joy. The reason why we named the series rejoice is because joy is a noun. Rejoice is a verb. To rejoice is a choice. And you only rejo rejoice when your choice is the gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.